so uh, William Shakespeare says that uh, the miserable have no other medicine, only hope. The miserable have no other medicine, only hope. We have this phrase that we use sometimes. We say, I'm holding out hope. What does that mean, that I'm holding out hope? It means that no matter how bleak the outlook is, and no matter how pressing my circumstances are, and even when it seems like there's no way forward, that I'm going to choose to believe. And the reason I'm going to choose to believe is because I understand, unless I take hope, I won't effort things. You know, and if I don't effort it, then even if there is a way, I'll miss the way where there is a way. You know what I mean? This is, so this is the idea, is that things look bleak and they look pressing and it looks like there's no way forward. But if there is actually a way forward, the only way I'm going to get there is if I continue to effort it. And so I have to have hope that draws me to, to continue to press in. And sometimes we really, really need that kind of hope, don't we? I mean, there's times when it's like, you know, you're at work and you're just like, I'm done. You know, that's all I got today. And yet, in order to get done what needs to get done, you just need a little more. So often, the thing that needs to be accomplished, we're so close to it, you know? And all we need is just a little bit more effort, and we can get there. And we lose hope at times. And hope is a very, very important thing. And we love stories in our culture of people who have taken hope. You know, of the, the country or the enemy who's been pressed almost to extinction and then somehow they find it within themselves and gain resolve and rise up and press back those who are oppressing them and they find freedom. Or we find it in relationships where it's like that relationship could be on the brink of extinction itself and it seems like it's not working and it's really difficult to make work. But then you find people like if they get humble and if they try again, and maybe they'll actually get through, and they get counseling, and they love each other and forgive each other, if, if we see that breakthrough, it's a great story. We don't see enough of, enough of those stories, but we love it when we see it. And this is true even in trite examples in our culture. I mean, this is one of the reasons why people watch athletics, right? Because you love the story of someone who, even though they're behind in the game, they find a way, they gut it out, you know, and they find a way, they, they take hope. I remember in uh, 1995, I don't know if I remember. Yeah, I do. Uh, they, in 1995, there was a playoff game, and it was between the Indiana Pacers and the New York Knicks. This is in basketball in the NBA. And the Knicks were up by six points. And there was only 18 seconds left in the game. They pretty much had it in the bag, you know? Six points, 18 seconds. But they didn't account for something that, that Pacers had, of course. And anybody know who that is? Reggie Miller. Yeah, Reggie Miller. So by the time there was nine seconds left in the game, only nine seconds had, its, had expired. And in those nine seconds, Reggie Miller had scored eight points in nine seconds. Single-handedly, he hit two threes and two foul shots in nine seconds. And they were up by two and they went on to win the game. That's an inspiring story, isn't it? Because in that moment, I mean, you just want to throw in the towel. You say, it's over. They're up six. There's 18 points. And this is why coach always says, you know, you play till the final whistle. It's never over until the buzzer goes, you know. And we need that sometimes. We need the shot in the arm that says, keep going. You know, keep going. There's possibility here that we haven't explored. But then, you know, there's this other side of things too. And the other side of things is that sometimes the buzzer does go off. You know, sometimes mathematically, scientifically, it's absolutely impossible. It doesn't matter who's on your team. It doesn't matter which doctor you have working on you. It doesn't matter, you know, who your president is. It doesn't matter what's going on. At this point, it could be game, set, and match, and it's already over. And to have hope in this moment is not a good thing. You know, once the buzzer has, has rung and it's over, it can be false hope, and we're holding on to something that we shouldn't be holding on to anymore. And in those moments, we have to encourage people to let go, you know? and to come to terms with reality, which is why Frederick Nietzsche, 
has a completely and totally different perspective on hope than William Shakespeare has. William Shakespeare said, for the miserable, there's no other medicine, there's only hope. But Nietzsche says this. He says, in reality, hope is the worst of all evils. Because all, all it does is prolong man's torment. Just prolongs man's torment. Why? Because in his mind, he says, the buzzer's already gone off. You know? All of us die. Do the stats. In the end, from dust to dust. It's all meaningless in the end. What's the point? You know, you might take hope in a moment and think there's something better out there, but in the end, that thing fades too. And there's nothing more than what it is that we have right here and right now. And so hope gives us this false hope, this false expectation that things can actually get better. And he believes that the greatest way to embrace life is to embrace it for what it is, not for what it could be. Because all there is, is what is. And so hope is the greatest of all evils because it deceives us and it doesn't allow us to come to terms with reality. Today, here at church, we're gathered and we're singing songs and there's joy. And it's for one reason. It's because the final buzzer went off and Frederick Nietzsche is still wrong. It's amazing. He's still wrong. Even though the buzzer went off and all die, and the tomb was closed and it was, and it was sealed. And what we found out today is that death was not God made. That death was man made. And that there is one who is greater than man and there is one who is greater than death. And he endured our cross and he suffered our shame and he was placed in a tomb. And today we celebrate that he rose from that grave. And after the buzzer, there was still hope. Because that which had held us captive, our own sins, our own selfishness, and our own death, was conquered by Christ. And because of that, we don't have to think the way Nietzsche did about hope. We can think in a whole nother level. We can say in the worst of circumstances that Christ has risen. So, here we are. John, chapter 20. I'm going to have you stand with me for the first nine verses of this chapter. This is the last, the end of the journey to Jerusalem in many ways here. So, verse 20, cha uh, chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They did not understand, they still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. May God add his richest blessing to the reading of his word. You can have a seat. So it's the first day of the week. What's the first day of the week? Sunday. Okay, when did Jesus die and when was he buried? What day of the week? Friday. 
Okay, so Friday he had died. Now it's Sunday, and they're going to see him. Why didn't they go to see him on Saturday? Because it's Sabbath. It's not just any Sabbath. It's also Passover. This is a big deal. But they are not allowed to go and see him at the tomb because it's Sabbath. They're not allowed to associate with dead. They're not allowed to walk probably the distance that it took, that type of thing. It's the day of rest. They're not allowed to go and see him. And yet things have been left undone. His body hasn't been prepared and all of that. They had to rush to get him into the tomb because the sun was going down on Friday night, which is the beginning of the Sabbath. So they got him into the tomb. They saw where it was and they went and they practiced Sabbath and they didn't go and see him. Now, what's interesting, and here's just a little footnote on the side, is that, do you know who was working on the Sabbath? Anybody remember something that happened on that day in between? It doesn't tell us in this gospel, but it tells us in another one that the religious leaders, see, they, they were like, ah, this isn't settled yet. So they went and talked to Pilate on the Sabbath. And they said, we remember, we remember that he said that he was going to rise from the dead. And so what we're going to do, he, he said that he could raise up the temple in three days, so we need you to pay, post watchmen, guards, at the tomb. And so what does Pilate say? He says, hey, if you want to post tomb, guards at the tomb, you know, feel free. Go ahead. You know, Pilate's not doing them any favors. They're not on his good list right now, you know. And so he says, but if you want to post, if you want to post people by the tomb, go ahead. And so they do. Jewish soldiers. Isn't that funny? that the disciples couldn't go and see Jesus because it's Sabbath, and yet the religious leaders could go and hang out with Pilate and send some of their own guards over here to where Jesus is to guard this tomb. You see how that's a little messed up? The irony of the whole situation? Okay, so here they are, and it's first thing in the morning, and it's Sunday morning. Now, the, the dawn has not even broken yet. And Mary and the other women, and in this passage it only talks about Mary, but she re- uses... Uh, Uh, plural pronouns to refer to herself and we know that she's talking about the other women she's with from the other gospels they get up and 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 before it's even light they make their way to the tomb okay so here it is and it's it's just daybreak and as the day is breaking they are there are they there because they expect to see jesus arisen no they're there for one reason it's because they need to prepare his body okay and it hasn't been prepared they show up and the and the stone has been rolled away and they find this surprise so Mary goes in, and she looks, and she doesn't know what's going on. She sees that no one's in there. So she runs back to John and to Peter, and she says to them, what? What does she say? They've taken him, and I don't know where they've put him. Does the thought ever cross her mind that he rose from the dead? It never seems to cross her mind. What's interesting to me, again, the irony, is the fact that the religious leaders posted watchmen around the tomb because they remembered that Jesus had said he would rise from the dead. And they didn't want someone playing some trick and stealing his body in order to make it look like he rose from the dead. And yet his followers show up and the stone is rolled away and there's no one in there and the thought never crosses their mind that he rose from the dead. Isn't that amazing? Again, the irony. You know, there's a lot of irony going on. Okay, so... She runs back and she gets John and she gets Peter. And they take off and they take off running. And 
Uh, John apparently is young, younger, and he's got quicker legs, and he gets there first, but he's checked at the tomb door because he's got fear, and he looks in, and he doesn't really know what to do. But Peter, in true form, even after denying Christ just a couple nights before, still has boldness and courage and comes barreling in, huffing and puffing, slides into the tomb, you know, never stops and looks around and like, what's going on in here? At which, of course, John then gains some courage as well because big brother Peter just went in, and so then he comes in and he looks around. And when they look in, they see something very peculiar. And what they see is just cloth. It's all they see. And yet there's something peculiar about the cloth. You see, the, the text here describes for us that the head cloth, the thing that was wrapped around the body, that, had, that was separate from the linen. There was linen that was around him, but there's head cloth. But what we can't understand from the text is what exactly this word means. It says that it was folded. In the NIV, it says it's folded. In other translations, it, it says some different things. Uh, that word could mean a couple different things. Basically, it's one of two things that happened, it looks like. It, they, they see that this, the, the way these linens are peculiar. It either looks like Jesus made his bed, <laughs> you know, uh, that he folded it and tucked it up and, you know, folded it nice. Or it, that word could be that it's twirled which could mean that it still looked like it was kind of in the shape of his body, you know, and that he had just, and it's still laying there as if he had been in it. Either way, what happens is they look at this, and it doesn't look like the work of grave robbers. It looks like something else. And in that moment, they look and they see, and what we're told is that John believes. That John believes. What is it that John believed? The text doesn't actually tell us what it is that he believed. It just says that he believed. And I have this sneaking suspicion because of the verse that follows it that says they still didn't know that the scriptures said that Christ would have to rise from the dead. I, I challenge you today to just tell me, how do you know from the Old Testament that Jesus was to rise from the dead? Silence. <laughs> How do you know from the Old Testament? You know, what's interesting about this whole scene is that if you read the Old Testament, what's bizarre to me is that there was never a thought really in their mind that the Messiah would die. Because death is all over it. I mean, it says that he was crushed, he was bruised for our iniquities, and it was for our transgressions, that, and he was like a lamb led to the slaughter, and it pleased God to crush him, and like the whole, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, and they cast lots for my clothing, that's all from the Psalms, you know, and all these things about his death are all Old Testament, and there's all these quotations, and, and the reason that those things, they never really picked up on that as the Messiah dying is because they also had all these prophecies about him establishing an eternal throne, you know, and, and so there was this sense that he would never see decay, you know? Even Psalm 16, it says, my body will never see decay. That's what it says. You, you will never allow the, whole, the body of the Holy One to see decay, is what it says in the Psalms. Well, shouldn't that mean resurrection? Well, it would mean resurrection if they actually thought that he was going to die. But they didn't think he was going to die, so they never thought resurrection. They just thought he was going to live eternally. But now that Jesus has died, their whole world got rocked, and they couldn't see it. And even though Jesus tried to warn them a bunch of times, of course, they couldn't stick to their head because it was different than their theology. How many times do our theologies keep us from hearing the truth that God has to give to us? I love, I hate, I say I love, this is very facetious. I hate when our theologies keep us from seeing the truth of Scripture. Sometimes that happens. We've been taught a certain thing and we think we have a certain set of assumptions because that's what we've been taught. 
And yet when God reveals the reality of himself, we can't hold on to that because we were too busy holding on to our theology. We couldn't allow Christ to speak to us through the scripture in a way that's fresh and new. Theology is important. Don't get me wrong. But Jesus is far more important than theology because theology just speaks to Jesus. Speaks about Jesus. Well, so here they are, and they have no idea that I don't believe in this moment that John and Peter knew that he rose from the dead, even in this moment. It says that they believed, but my guess is, is this stopped short of believing necessarily that he rose from the dead. It's a different thing. It's that they took hope. It's that they had courage again. It's that they believed that God was moving, that something was happening that was bigger than what they understood at this point. We need that. In the moments where we don't know what's happening, where we don't understand, where nothing makes sense to us yet, we still need those moments where God touches our heart, not necessarily explaining everything to us, but enough to let us know something bigger than I can understand is going on here. And they take faith, and they believe again, and they have hope. However, when they have hope, it says in verse 10, they split and they go back home. But in verse 11, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. All right, now I just want to say something here for a second before we move on. Mary stays, which is really important. Mary doesn't have faith yet. She doesn't have hope. We'll find out. She continues to not have hope or faith yet in what has happened. However, Mary stays. She lingers by the tomb. And I think there's something to be gained here. All too often, we don't linger. We don't wait on God. We have an experience that's painful and we just want the pain to stop. So we run to something to get the pain to stop. We move to the next experience. We move to the next relationship. We're on the go. We have the next accomplishment and we fail to just wait. And sometimes even in the worst of our pain, the best thing we can do is just wait because those that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. And sometimes when we choose to just sit and wait, And not rush to the next thing, not rush to ease our pain, but sit there with Christ and meditate on what's going on. In those moments, we begin to find what it is that we need to find. But we have to wait. And if we go and try to fix the problems all the time, we never get to experience the fullness of what God has for us. And there is something awesome that He has for her right now. We continue. As she went, she bent over and looked into the, to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? Okay, she just saw two angels, right? We know from, we know from other passages that they know they're angels. We know from other gospel passages, they actually know they're angels. They're startled by them. And it's a, so they're, like she sees these angels and they ask her why she's crying. Does she have hope now? Does she have faith now? No, she continues to not have. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Okay? So at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking, she was the, thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. What's amazing to me, this is honestly just truly 
surprising when you read this story is that Mary could encounter two angels and she could encounter Jesus and she could encounter an empty tomb and she could encounter the same thing that Jesus or uh, John and Peter saw with the linens laying there and she was there when Jesus said he would rise from the dead and the priests even knew that and were afraid of it and yet she's still in this moment the thought seems to not have crossed her mind yet that Christ could have risen from the dead This woman is in deep, deep grief. She is in huge despair at this point. Her world has been totally rocked as she has watched the one she loved tortured on that Roman cross. And she is on a mission to do what she can to love Jesus even if it's just his body. And she has no idea how she can care for him when she can't find his body. And she is stuck. She is myopic. She is right here focused on one thing and nothing else will face her. Angels or Jesus himself will not be able to get her off her mission to love Jesus and to take care of his body. And her mind is stuck and she can't see it because her heart is crushed and she can't have hope because she can't see anything, because she is held up by her despair. You know, there's been a number of times where um, I've talked to people who struggle in faith, and they've said to me, Tim, I don't understand, like, if God really wants me to believe in him, why doesn't he just reveal himself to me? Why doesn't he just show himself to me? And you look at this passage, and you're like, you know, Jesus showed himself to her, and she didn't even believe. Sometimes I wonder, what would happen if Jesus showed up in this room? What if he came walking through the door? You know, right now, if he just walked through the door, and not in his exalted state like in heaven, but just kind of like this, you know? And he came in, and he came in, and he, and he said, hey, look, see the holes in my hand? See the, the scar in my side? See my feet? I'm Jesus. Would you believe him? I wouldn't. No way. I'll tell you what, if a guy walked in right now and had holes in his feet and holes in his, and he said he was Jesus, uh-uh, you're not Jesus. But A, you don't look like Jesus. I've seen the pictures. <laughs> but B, my theology doesn't allow for this right now. You can't walk up into this room like this, you know? I'm still waiting for the return of the Lord. I'm waiting for the sound of the trumpets, man. Where'd they go? I didn't hear the sound of the trumpets. I didn't see you come on the clouds, you know? But what happens if he does it in a way that's different than we think? Can we receive him in the moment, you know? And I have a feeling that even if Jesus shows up right now and says to those of us who doubt, here I am, that doesn't help us. It doesn't actually help us because we can still doubt. What if he does some miracles? What if he does some miraculous things? I still think we could find a way to easily doubt. You see, whether or not she sees him in this moment, whether or not she recognizes Jesus in this moment, is not about whether her physical eyes see him or not. See, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us we live by faith and not by sight. And what we understand about the risen Lord is that he will not be seen just by physical eyes. That he could be right in our presence, right in front of us, and we would miss him. And so often, those among us, and ourselves included, who doubt, Jesus can be right there in front of us. And the only thing that's missing from us engaging him and seeing him in the moment is that we don't have faith. That we're not looking for him. 
We're stuck on still trying to justify our theology or do work for God or take care of all the problems that he left here for us to take care of. And in the middle of it, he's revealing himself to us through all sorts of things. One of those, he told us, is the least of these who are all around us, who are in desperate need of help. And we often miss him because we're not looking for him because we don't believe. And he's right there. The beauty about Jesus is that he doesn't ask us to just do it all on our own. He helps us with the faith. Does faith come by seeing? Not at all. We live by faith, not by sight. And she saw him and still couldn't believe that he was there. Sight doesn't help us believe. You know, what's the old saying? Seeing is believing. Lies, lies. Seeing is not believing. Faith is believing. Seeing is not believing at all. It honestly isn't. Seeing is not what gives belief. Belief is found when you don't see and choose to believe. Then you start to see. That's what happens. What does faith come by? Hearing. Hebrews tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So she saw Jesus, but she didn't believe. What did she need? She needed to hear his voice. And so what happens? Here it is. I love it. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She sees him in this moment. She finally knows it's him. Why? Because she heard the word of God. The word of God has to be spoken to us. We have faith because we hear and we hear the word of God. And God was there in front of her, but she couldn't see him. But when the word of God was spoken to her, when she heard her name by the voice of God, all of a sudden her spirit, something changes. And instead of being crushed in spirit and hopeless, bam! Her spirit is healed and it changes and she can see that this man who she's talking to, she had no idea it was God. And here among us are the least of these who God told us are Him here on earth and we miss Him all the time. Why? Because we're not looking, because we don't have faith, because we don't believe. And it's not going to change because of us seeing Him. We're going to begin to see Him because we have faith. See, and we don't have to buy the whole Christian thing at once. Honestly, we really don't. We don't have to buy the entirety of the scriptures at once. I know people who struggle with faith and they struggle for these reasons. Tim, really? Seven literal days of creation? Have you seen the evidence? You know? Can you tell me that science is, matches up with that? That doesn't work for me. You know? Or, or this one. Loving God? Really? This is a loving God. And he's going to send people to hell. And it's, it's gonna be, oh, he's going to be okay with that. And he allows all this suffering. And I'm supposed to buy into the loving God concept, you know? Name the question. There's all sorts of questions. And, and, and what do we have to say about that? When we look at that and we're like, for you to try to understand that before accepting and receiving the reality of Christ in your life is absolutely absurd. There's no way that you will be able to understand how this person works until you know this person. You can't just sit there and read them like a book and expect to understand everything about them. You have to experience them. And you have to know that person before you can understand how and why they work. You have to engage in this person. And there's only one thing that we need to know in order to begin to engage God. There's only one thing we need to know. And it's this. 
is that a man a couple thousand years ago named Jesus walked this earth and he was God and he died on a Roman cross for our sins, a literal death. And he was put into a real tomb and they put a real stone on it and they sealed it. And then three days later on the third day, that man came back to life. And when he came back to life, I can live with him and I can presently have a relationship with him. That is the only thing that I need to start this journey. I don't have to understand everything else. I don't have to worry about our origins. I don't have to worry about the end and how it's all going to shake down. I don't have to worry about all the different characteristics of God and bringing them into reconciliation. I don't have to worry about all that. All I have to know is that he died on the cross for my sins, that he arose, that he appeared to people in the flesh. He ate fish with them. He did stuff to let them know he was alive and that I can have a relationship with him right now. And if I will choose to believe that, then all the other questions, I can start the journey of figuring them out, but I can do it with him. Okay? Now here's the thing. Jesus doesn't make us have to make the decision about that thing without any reason. This isn't an irrational leap of faith. Honestly, it's not. We can have all those other questions about all those other things, but this central piece of truth that we have to choose to believe, I, I want to just lay this out for a second. John saw the linen, okay? God gave him help. Mary heard his voice, and that gave him help. We are told at the end of this chapter, in verse, uh, I think it's 31, It says this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. What are we given? What's the evidence that we are given? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And it is written in this book so that we may believe. Now listen, you might say, well, that's great, but anybody could write a book. Well, this book is written based on one central truth, and it's that when they showed up that day, there was no one in the tomb. And there is no historian who's worth their salt at all, who's any good of a historian, who will believe that Jesus was actually in that tomb. Honestly, this has no, no bearing on whether or not you have faith. If you are a good historian, you will know there's no way that Jesus was in that tomb. Why? Because there's no way Christianity would have spread if you could have gone to the tomb and pointed and said Jesus is in there. At any point, the whole thing would have stopped. All they had to do was go to the tomb, open it up and say, there he is. Now shut your mouth, you know? But they couldn't do that because the tomb was already open and there was nothing in it. And, when, and so then we might say, well, yeah, of course. Well, then, you know, maybe the chief priest went and took it. Well, that's also ridiculous because if they took it, then why did they not just say at some point, we took it? And it would have stopped the whole thing in its tracks, but they couldn't say it. Because they didn't have any evidence. Because they didn't do it. So then there's one more possibility. And that's that the apostles took it. Okay, that they're the ones who, who had this whole scheme. Which, okay, you can kind of buy for a little bit until you see one after the next after the next die brutal deaths for something that they knew was a lie? Are you kidding me? Why would they go through all of that one after the other if they knew it was a lie? There's all sorts of people who die for stuff that's dumb. But they always do it because they think it's real, you know? And it's not. 
People don't die for stuff that they know is unreal and that they've been the ones holding it. Why would they do that? And all of them, these brutal, torturous deaths, the, the most rational thing to say is that they walked in and there was an empty tomb. And you have to have an explanation as to why this thing is empty. And all the other stuff causes all sorts of questions. There's only one thing that makes the most sense. And it's that this man, who just a couple weeks before was up in Bethany having a party because he had raised Lazarus from the dead, that now when he had been dead and buried, he himself came back to life just like he said he would. Honestly, find me something that's more rational than that, that explains the empty tomb. I've been looking for something more rational. Help me find one, you know? There is nothing. It's the most rational. So, it's, so there's evidence here. Just like there was the, the cloth folded, just like Mary heard the voice, we have a scripture, and that scripture is backed up by a historical account of an empty tomb. And whether we believe or not, we have to come to terms with the fact that that tomb was empty. And that the man who had been in there had massive claims of being the Messiah, of being the Son of God, of being the only way, the only truth, and the only life. We've got to do something with that. We've got to think about that. I don't know about you, but at times I struggle to believe. And I don't mean that I struggle to believe that the resurrection happened, but I do struggle at times to believe in just how much of a reality is that Christ is right here with us right now. You know? And I wish that I could just see sometimes, you know? And I wish that I could be like Thomas and get the option of, of touching Jesus, you know, the doubting Thomas. But Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't force himself on us. Why not? One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because when Jesus comes and he reveals himself in all his glory, we won't have any option but to fall on our face the way John does in the book of Revelation as though dead. All of us will. But in the meantime, Jesus doesn't want to force the issue. He doesn't want to make us acknowledge him. Jesus wants a relationship with us. And relationships, they don't happen by forcing people to do things. Faith, is, that's because we're inspired by Jesus. We want to trust him. We want to love him. We want to believe him. But sometimes we need help. And so I want to urge you this morning that if you need help in believing, and you honestly do want to know Jesus, ask him for help in believing. You know? Just ask him for help. He gave it to them. He'll give it to us. Now, this isn't the antagonist who says, God, I won't believe unless you prove yourself to me. You know, well, you don't want to see him. You won't see him, you know. But those who want to see Christ and who want to believe but don't want it to just be irrational, they, ask him, ask him. Perhaps the hardest thing, though, to believe is not just that Jesus rose from the dead. Perhaps the harder part is to believe that we rose with him. Honestly, I believe that this is much harder. To say that there was this guy back there who rose from the dead, well, yeah, maybe, you know? Okay, I guess I can buy that. The evidence seems like it's stacked up that way. But the effects that that has on my life and what that means for me, it changes reality for me if I actually believe what the Scriptures say. And that is much harder to believe, which is why even though John had started to believe in verse 8, you find that all the way down in verse 19, he and Peter and the rest of them are in an interesting situation. It says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together the, with doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. How about it? He saw the cloth. He started to believe again. And yet here he is, 
locked up in a room with all the other guys, afraid, aren't they? That's what's going on. Why are they afraid? Because they might have believed that God was doing something, maybe even believed that Jesus rose from the dead, but they didn't believe that that changed life for them yet. They're still huddled up in this tomb in some ways, you know? It's an upper room, but really it's just a tomb. They're still living in a place of death. They're still living in a place of darkness. They're still living in fear. Perfect love drives out fear. Now here's the beauty of it, is that Jesus, a couple, a couple days before, on Thursday night, had told them this. You remember what he told them about the Holy Spirit? He said, when I go, I'm going to send you a comforter. And, and he said, listen, in this world, you will have all sorts of turmoil and all sorts of struggle. But fear not, you will have peace because I have overcome the world. In this world, I give you peace. So that's what he told them, that there was all this struggle in their life, but he was going to bring them peace. Then, the next day, they see him hanging on a cross, the next night. And he's sitting there on a cross, and he's dying, very obviously dying, and he just looks absolutely horrific, and they've seen the worst things they've ever seen in their life. And from that cross, he looks down at them, and he says this. He says, it is finished. He's buried, and he's put away. And now here it is, a couple days later, Sunday. Thursday, he had told them they would have peace, even in this world of turmoil. Friday, he gets killed, and he says it's finished, whatever that means, and he dies and gets put in the tomb. And now he shows up, and they hear the first words from Jesus. And he shows up, and he says, Shalom, peace be with you. How's that for a period on the end of his statement of it is finished? You see, in this moment, they're in fear. They're still in turmoil. They're still in the darkness. They're still afraid that what they just saw happen to him was going to happen to them. And what they didn't realize was that he was alive and he had conquered death. And even though the final buzzer had gone off, he had risen from the dead and it was all good. And they're still playing by the rules of death and fear. And they shouldn't be anymore because he's conquered death. So he shows up right in the middle of them and he says, peace. And how could he say peace with all of this going on? Because he was now with them. And it's beautiful. Basically what he says in this moment is he says, here you are stuck in this place, but I'm telling you, you should not be afraid of them anymore. They should be afraid of you. That's what he says. Listen, he goes on and he just says, and again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. I wish that I had a lot more time to go into all of that, and obviously I don't. You know, there's incredible stuff that's happening in that passage of what Jesus is encouraging them. But here's the bottom line, is that they were broken people who had failed their Lord two days before. They had all abandoned him, and they had left him. And he was dead, and he was put into a tomb. And now that he was risen, he doesn't come back and shake his finger at them for leaving him. He took care of that on the cross, Okay? It's done. He doesn't even mention it. It's done. And then he breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit. Because what he is doing is he is saying his presence now, his life now is their life. That when they have identified with Christ in death, they can identify with him in life. And all the parameters that have chained in their life, the fear of death, the fear of rejection, the fear of all of these things that have held them back, they are no longer the boundaries of their lives. The final buzzer is no longer the final buzzer. When it seems mathematically and scientifically impossible to have hope, there is still reason for hope. And he tells them at this point, 
I am sending you the way my Father sent me. Your job now is that you are on mission with me, and they have to look out for you because nothing can stop you. Even the grave can't stop you. I've conquered that. What else are you fearing? What else are you living for? This should change the world. This should change your life. This is it, you know? And so let's go back to the original question. Frederick Nietzsche, all hope is, is this just delayed torment? Or is it William Shakespeare that the miserable have no other medicine, only hope? What is it? Is hope medicine or is it torment? You know, the question really isn't about hope. The question's about what we're hoping in. Honestly, because there's all sorts of things that we could hope in that are just going to disappoint us. Hope in the turned around, turning around economy, you know? See, see how that works out for us. Hope in that tax return and see how far it takes us, you know? Hope in the right theology and then go up against some scholars who know better, <laughs> you know, and see what happens. Hope that Christ will return today. Well, you know, he might, but he might not, you know? What are we hoping in, in that relationship, in that new job? What are we hoping in? If we're having hope in that, then we might as well think like Friedrich Nietzsche. We might as well say it's just delayed torment because you know in the end that stuff is still destined for the grave. The question isn't about whether we should hope or not. The question is about what we should put our hope in. We put our hope in Christ because we realize that the grave can't hold him, death can't have him. He is ours to have and to hold from this day forward and forevermore if we are a part of his church. Will you believe that? Honestly. You know, today I want to hold on I want to hold out hope. I want to believe today that no matter what happens today, I can have peace in the midst of my turmoil. That no matter what pain we face with the sickness that will ravage our bodies, that we can have joy in the midst of that pain. No matter how bleak the circumstances may look in our world and all the things that are pressing upon us, we don't have to be depressed. We can have hope. And no matter how hopeless the situation seems, and no matter how impossible the situation seems, I can have faith for one reason because when the final buzzer went off Jesus rose from the grave and he will not fail me and he will not disappoint so I will hope in no other thing but in Jesus Christ and I will never be disappointed join me in prayer